Thank you for joining us for the program COVID-19, Considerations in Reopening Your School Campus. Our first speaker is Aaron Baer, partner at Wigan and Dana in Connecticut. Aaron is a litigation partner who heads the firm's education practice group and previously chaired the firm's appellate practice group. Based on his experience in government, he also advises companies and nonprofit organizations on government regulatory matters and investigations. He draws on his experience in positions in higher education and government to advise colleges, universities, private secondary schools, and nonprofit organizations on the complex legal, regulatory, and public relations issues they regularly face. Our next speaker is Linda Johnson, Director of the Litigation Department and Co-Chair of the Education Law Group at McLean Middleton in New Hampshire. Linda focuses her practice on understanding and serving the needs of independent and boarding schools. She serves as outside legal counsel to many of the country's top independent and boarding schools, including the largest independent academy in the United States. She also provides counseling services, policy development and review, and trainings to public schools, especially in the area of safe schools and employment law. She works closely with heads of schools, deans, financial officers, trustees, and others. Welcome everybody to uh, Terralex's COVID-19 Considerations and Reopening Your School Campus. Uh, my colleague Linda Johnson and I will be presenting today and for the first two parts of the program, which have to do with mitigating risks and reopening and other considerations for reopening campuses. Uh, Linda will take the lead and do the presenting and then I will come back and talk about the special considerations for reopening college and university campuses. Thanks very much. Um, here's Linda. All right, thanks, Aaron. So to begin with, we thought we would talk about what are the steps as you consider reopening that you should um, follow. And we boiled it down to 12. Uh, importantly, you should follow the directives of the federal, state, and local government, in particular, the state government, wherever your school is located. The federal government has various uh, directives, guidelines that we will talk about it in, in a moment. But as it relates to reopening, their reopening uh, guidelines were actually recommendations to the state. And as we've seen, each state is following something different. On occasion, there are also local government directives or guidelines that you must follow. Um, I read this morning that Chicago has just come out with some anti-retaliation provisions, provisions that if an employee is following either a um, recommendation from their doctor to quarantine, or what the local or state government is directing them to do, that an employer cannot take negative action. So you really have to keep up on what is going on there. Same thing for the guidelines coming out from public health experts. The CDC, a World Health Organizations and state and local health officials. In the area, especially of the CDC, there are um, guidelines coming out almost, it seems like sometimes daily, but at least weekly, where they're improving, uh, listening to what is going on out there and creating more detail and great resources for everyone. Also to follow the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and the Department of Labor to understand what they are um, saying about enforcement of various laws, the ADA, your obligations to have a safe work environment, the leave laws that have come out in response to the COVID-19 situation, anti-discrimination. What everyone's doing right now is figuring out their plan. So obviously you need to develop a plan and a plan with contingencies for return to campus. We, Aaron and I are hearing all different kinds of formulas. People, schools that are planning to come back onto campus, other schools that are planning to have um, a hybrid. We're going to come back on campus. We're going to have some remote, or we're going to have uh, some schools that may decide, you know, we may just do all remote, and we've read about that. It is a time to look at your policies, practices, and expectations to set forth what will be required with the new normal when you do come back to campus. The social distancing, the enhanced hygiene of hand washing, uh, the health and safety measures. You know, America seemed to have had a work ethic for so long, which is unless you were really sick, you came to work. And now it's, if you are sick at all, stay home. And really putting that across so your employees and students understand what is required. And having to be flexible to pivot when necessary. 
uh, things are looking the way they are now. And Aaron and I are both on a daily basis from, uh, looking to see what is new, what is going on out there, what are other schools doing, so that you can um, have in place what you need when your campus opens. Communication is also critical, and it should be communicating regularly and often. I have many schools that, and I work in the K through 12 arena largely, uh, not as much college and university work. Aaron is on the college and university side. So some of my schools are already having weekly Zoom meetings with their families to say, here's what's going on, here's what we're doing, here's what we're planning. And that isn't going to stop once the community or campus um, uh, people return. And all of this is also to educate, educating your employees, your students, your families about what the school is doing and what the school expects from them. And on a moving forward basis, as we're doing now, monitor, monitor, monitor. We must stay abreast with the changing landscape and the legal obligations, and they have changed. It, this will require you on occasion to evaluate and adapt your plans, policies, and procedures. So if your student and employees handbooks don't already say it uh, in the K through 12 world, you can include a provision that says, here is our student handbook, which may even be uh, revised during the school year. So you have that right to make changes as you move forward. Importantly, to enforce and hold people accountable. Uh, we hear stories now for some businesses that were essential and already in operation of people defying and not wearing the masks when they are required to. And it's really important to keep your environment safe, to hold employees accountable for that, and also to document your actions to all, everything that you're doing now is right, you, you, you remember it, and you wanna be able to have a documentation of what those actions are. Many schools have created a task force. Some schools already had a risk management division of their board, and uh, as well as a crisis response team. And you do have, wanna have this COVID-19 uh, task force that uh, manage these situations typically with the head of school as it moves forward. Uh, overall considerations for all schools at any level, it's really a business decision for each school. How are you going to do that? We have seen media stories already that some schools have decided to be online for the time being, except perhaps where a lab or other things are needed because you must be on site. And then in that case, implementing all of the other safety measures of social distancing, increased hygiene, and, and directives that we'll talk about. Factors to consider are what is allowed where you're located, local state, what are the relevant stay-at-home orders and recommendations say. In many cases for independent schools, which is the bulk of my client base, the states are issuing directives for the public schools and not including the independent schools for all of that. So from a perspective of what is the standard of care, you do want to consider what is being required for the public schools and determine what may be necessary for you to do in line with that. As I've said before, the public health official recommendations that are specific to schools. I have a slide later on that speaks to what are all the CDC recommendations for the schools and they have changed over time and they're being added to. Um, is COVID-19 testing widely available? We're hearing more and more stories about um, you know, private partnership with the uh, government to create that testing. And is the vaccine available? Um, we have heard it's being fast-tracked. You know, years ago, it might take seven or eight years. Maybe we'll be lucky and it might be 18 months. But quite frankly, until there is a vaccine available, there will be the risk that COVID can make its way to your campus. And so you need to do what is necessary to deal with that. Before opening your campus, you should take a look do you have a pandemic policy and practices? We review a lot of handbooks and I will say quite frankly, only a very few have had a contagious disease policy. So you do wanna take a look and perhaps add that. Incorporating where necessary the CDC recommendations and, and your prevention recommendations. Sanitation, uh, what do you do about um, personal protective equipment requiring masks, who provides it, who pays for it? about the school, if you say families, you need to arm your students with masks, what happens when they don't come to the campus with masks? 
when are you going to require that and the testing and the vaccinations um, having plans for screening and monitoring the health of all your employees there are some schools i'm speaking to now who are saying you know we're going to have our students tested when they come to campus and then uh, they're going to be tested for some period after that and maybe periodically later because of the po potential for a false negative that they are saying maybe a single test isn't good. Many schools are also working with uh, medical health professionals to say, here are our plans. And from the perspective of a medical health professional, what do you think? Critical to develop your relationships if you don't already have them with your local and state health officials. For instance, what happens if you have a positive uh, test uh, for COVID? Um, what are there requirements in your state for reporting that? When that happens, what kind of contact tracing takes place? Figure out who that person came in contact with. Knowing already in advance from your local and state health officials, what is their role and what they will be doing and what you will be doing will keep your campus safer. Another thing to consider is you will have vulnerable students and employees. Employees and students who may have um, pre-existing health conditions, which, which make them more prone or susceptible to having a very serious impact of contracting COVID. And so is it possible that you have some employees who are vulnerable, which might be based on their age or pre-existing health condition, that are able to continue to telework? Or for periods of when there are symptoms, are they for a period of time able to do their work, telework or remotely distance learning? Same thing for vulnerable students. Some schools are considering uh, families who do, don't want their students to return because of the student's health condition. Can they provide some kind of distance learning to that student until the family and student feel more comfortable about returning to campus? What I hear is actually a lot of creative things going on to try to deal with this world that we're living in of required social distancing and improved hygiene. So considerations include lifting of the stay-at-home orders that allow you to open, meeting the conditions that are established by your federal guidance, uh, local, public, K through 12, and as Aaron will speak about, the institutions of higher education. Are you able to meet the safe workplace rules? You know, can you provide the necessary PPE? What is it that you're doing to create that social distancing? And the needs of your students, families, and faculty. Are they comfortable returning? Are they committed to returning? I've read various surveys recently which speak to that, and it's all over the place. Some say, yes, I want my child to return to the school, and I have faith in the school that they're doing what is necessary to do that. No school can guarantee that there will be a COVID-free environment, simply not possible, but that families feel comfortable and employees feel comfortable to say, I recognize that the school is doing all that it can. I'm going to speak only briefly to the federal guidance. Uh, we hear so much on a day-to-day -day basis now in your own state about these opening up guidelines. It all started really back in April, seems so long ago, but it really wasn't. Guidelines for opening up America came out from the White House. And these guidelines were recommendations for state and regional authorities. And I highlight that in the red because it is recommendations. In turn now, every state has been issuing their own specific recommendations. You have to be careful because sometimes something says a guideline when it actually is a mandate. And sometimes it says a guideline when it is a recommendation. So in your individual state, you wanna take care to say, you know, what is the must, employers must, schools must, versus what is it that you have some discretion on. So the basics of these original guidelines for opening up had gating criteria and three phases. The gating criteria were simply that we've reached a point that the curve that we hear so much about is, been, is lowering. There's a downward trajectory in the COVID-like symptoms. There's a downward trajectory in the documented cases. The hospitals have the capacity to treat the patients who are coming in, and there is testing available for at-risk workers. And so that is what you'll see in each of your states is there's some form of gating criteria that the states are doing to say, we feel that you know, we can open up in the phases that you're seeing. You know, phases to say the restaurants can open up with open air dining. Um, you know, the, the barbershops and salons can open up 
uh, with a limited number of people that are being uh, served, uh, things of that nature, the phases. The, there are some guidelines that apply in all phases, and those have to do with the good hygiene. They have to do with people who are sick, stay home. They have to do, now this one sentence has a lot in it. It says employers should develop and implement policies, social distances, personal protective equipment, temperature checks, testing, isolation, contact tracing, sanitation and disinfection of high traffic areas, and business travel. That's one sentence with a lot in it. Right now in New Hampshire, where I live, they do require when your employees come in, you screen them. You have them answer questions. I don't have any COVID-like symptoms. I have not been in close contact with it, someone who has tested positive for COVID. And you take their temperature, either the employees taking it before they come to work, or if um, it's not possible to take the temperatures at work, but at work, you have a screening station where you use the no contact thermometers to take that. Employers are getting some pushback on that. People are saying, I don't want to have to do that. And if it's a directive in your state, you have to ensure that you do that and you keep a record of that. As I've indicated, monitoring your workforce for symptoms and not allowing symptomatic people to return. So there's the gating criteria is in all phases that you're normalizing it. And there is some fear that there could be a spike. Will there be a spike? Originally it was predicted to be in November. And now it's like, will it be sooner? Because people are loosening up. There have been some gatherings based on recent protests and will that cause a spike? But you'll see the government, federal government had suggested three phases. In phase one, schools were closed, avoiding groups of um, more than 10 where social distancing is not possible. Phase two, schools can reopen. And you should still use telework if possible. You should still minimize non-essential travel, accommodate your vulnerable populations. And now the groups can be uh, avoiding groups of 50 or more. So you see an expansion of that. In phase three, unrestricted staffing. Now, I will say phase three is what I call the new normal. And the new normal will be far from normal. So the new normal that we have will be different. Will we live in a world where we no longer handshake? You know, what do we do about that? Um, I, I've kind of adopted the, you know, the, the bow, I guess, because both my children are Buddhist. But um, there are things that we aren't going to do the way that we did that before, especially in operation. Okay, so for CDC guidance, I thought I would assist those of you who may be in that world. These, I think, are the best guidance documents for the K through 12 schools. And um, I suggest that you monitor those regularly. There are a lot of very helpful information for you in administration, healthcare, teachers, uh, even for families. And there's also posters. So uh, I think to reinforce this, um, they have some wonderful, whether it's the, the hygiene or um, color posters that you can simply print off and put up around your campus, but you should find these helpful considerations in reopening. So there's also um, uh, important guidelines from the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that relate to reopening. And that has to do with, I remember the first question that I got, or one of the first questions I got from a school when this started to show up was, can I take my employee's temperature? And at that time, the answer was no. The uh, pursuant to the Americans with Disabilities Act, taking an employee's temperature was actually a medical examination, which was not allowed. And it, that was also from a school in a community where there hadn't been an outbreak. There was no direct threat or immediate threat going on. And so based on the research at that time, the response was no. Well, then uh, COVID-19 uh, was declared to be a pandemic. And so the EEOC and the, the application of the Americans with Disability Act led to a different result. So I recontact that school and said now, and it is allowed that you can take the temperature. And then what you saw even further was that since that time, it is um, in some places mandated that you do so, like in New Hampshire, where you must take your employee's temperature at the start of every shift. And so the EEOC has a lot of guidance that will be helpful to you for your day-to-day -day question. Can you test their employee's temperature? And they have really easy to understand Q&A, uh, or of course, you could always call your legal counsel like Aaron and I to ask these questions. Um, but some, for cost reasons, uh, schools are trying to figure these out themselves. So can you ask some questions? 
about calling in sick if they are experiencing symptoms. Here again, prior to the pandemic declaration, the answer would have been no, because we were restrict, restricted under the ADA to ask questions about people's medical. And now the answer is yes, you can. Can you tell employees who are exhibiting symptoms to go home? The answer is yes, you can. Can you require fitness for duty documentation before the return? Yes, you can. And there's a lot of guidance there about what happens if you, you know, gave somebody a job offer and then they came down with COVID. What can you do about that? So you'll find helpful guidance on the EEOC website. Um, I think this slide, the few words, monitor and follow your state, stay at home and return to work is the most critical. Every state's doing it a little differently. There's a lot of similarities about the social distancing and, and health and safety practices, but each state has it a little different. So you need to know what that is and follow that along. Know where to find your uh, governor's uh, executive orders that relate to the stay at home and return to work guidance and follow that. In many states, there are um, industry-specific guidelines. And so for schools, you'll have the school return, but then you'll have a section that deals with offices. So you wanna to look to see what is going on there. Most schools that are residential and maybe some day schools as well have food services facilities. What is being recommended for restaurants and what are those things that might have application to you? Take a look at all of that. The common themes in all of this are, you'll need to reconfigure spaces and perhaps put up physical barriers. Many schools have common areas to mitigate against um, people not following social distancing. Do you take some of the couches out or do you take the couches out of your common spaces? Do you take some of the desks out of the classrooms so that the students will stay six to 10 feet apart and mitigate the opportunity that they'll sit next to each other in the class? Limiting face-to-face -face meetings or things that you can't allow that, um, uh, where social distancing is not possible. And then a big one is figuring out what do you do? Is it a phased return to campus? Is it, is it a phased class and meeting schedule and meal times, having flexible hours and where possible for certain positions to encourage till, to have teleworking if it is possible. Safety and health has lots of components. Screening at the outset for people coming back providing the equipment and who will pay for that, requiring or allowing masks, cleaning and disinfection, um, not sharing equipment, cell phones, promoting the good hygiene, uh, non-essential travel. Travel has been a frequent question now. What do you do about people who are traveling? Can you require them when they come back to say you will quarantine for a period of time or get tested? And the um, Certainly, the if you're sick, please stay home. Reporting and self-monitoring and having that response plan. What is it that you will require for testing and contact tracing? And as I said, as it moves forward, as the testing becomes more available, the answers may change. It may be, yes, we are gonna require everyone to have testing, but is it readily available? Do you have the capacity to do that for everyone? And if not, what then? So the answers are not the same for every school, or not, not the same for every geographic area. The incidence of COVID in your area may be quite different than the incidence of COVID, say, in New York or in Boston. And what difference does that make about your opening up? The phased approach is an important one to gradually restart. And I hear most schools coming up with plans for the gradual restart. Um, some in-person programming with social distancing, some online programming. Um, regular reporting mechanisms uh, to keep track with what's going on in your community, dealing with both internal, your employee concerns, and misconduct allegations. Uh, someone reporting, I'm concerned because I see my fellow colleagues not following these directives. What will you do about that? Modified school schedules. Uh, again, some schools are saying we're not start opening till September instead of August. School saying we're gonna open and we're gonna create a closed community. We're, we're not gonna let visitors on. We're gonna to try to treat our school like a family self-quarantining together. Or we're gonna take a break in Thanksgiving and not come back until January because we're concerned that may be when there's a spike. 
or the opposite. We're not going to take a break and we're going to end our school year earlier. So lots of different things. You need to decide what's right for your school. Do you modify the school week? Uh, one of the schools that we were are talking with was saying, well, we have to have less students in the classroom for the social distancing. Maybe we will have you know, half the class in the classroom and half the class in their dorm room. So it's a combination of distance learning with campus and then the next week we'll flip it. So the students will come who were in their dorm room doing the distance learning will be in the classroom. What's right for you is something that you'll have to evaluate your ability to do that and what works for you. Staggered return, smaller classes, continued online option. International students is a big issue. Will they be able to come back? Will they want to come back? Do you have the capacity to provide for distance learning for them until things are in a different place and they are able to come back? So covered a lot in a very short amount of time, but I think the important part right now is everyone is planning, everyone is monitoring, and the most critical areas are monitoring what's coming out from the CDC and health state and local health authorities, monitoring what the directives are in your own state, and then figuring out a plan with contingencies, being flexible and saying, here's what we're planned and also communicating to your employees and to your families. I'm gonna turn it now to Erin, who will speak to the layer of college and university reopenings. Erin? Thanks, Linda, that was great. Um, many of the considerations that Linda has just gone through apply as well to college and universities. Although the residential colleges and universities really have uh, unique and difficult challenges um, because they're essentially small towns for many of them and there are obvious difficulties in trying to control uh, what college and university students do. So there's a variety of reopening plans. Some institutions are, have announced that they're planning to open almost entirely online for the fall semester. Um, the state university system in California has already made that announcement. Most other institutions are planning some combination of in-person classes and remote classes. And even within a single class, particularly large lecture courses, they're dividing the class into groups so that they can limit, limit the number of students in the lecture hall at one time with one small group in the classroom and the other students participating remotely and rotating as the, as the course progresses. Some institutions like the University of Vermont have announced that they are going to be quarantining students for two weeks as they arrive. Um, others are not doing that, but have testing in place. Virtually all for all campuses, testing is a critical component of their reopening plans. Um, as noted here, the University of Arizona is planning to test virtually everyone. The same is true of institutions in Connecticut. The University of California at San Diego is planning to do that and test 60% of their campus population every month. Um, a lot of this has to do with the availability of testing and who's paying for it. Contact tracing, as Linda mentioned earlier, is also a critical component of most reopening plans. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide because it really does mirror what um, private secondary schools uh, are having to do. I will say dormitories present a unique problem for most colleges and universities because of the density of student populations in them. Their goal has got to be to reduce the number of students in dormitories and figure out ways to achieve social distancing with their student populations. So one idea that's gained some popularity is clustering students living together as if they are a family group. So you'd have a group of students sort of isolating themselves not from each other, but from everyone else. So a group living together would not have to isolate from one another, but they would do things together, socialize together, dine together, but keep their distance from other groups of students in the dorms and elsewhere. All institutions are having to figure out space that they could allocate for quarantining students who either test positive or have been exposed to students who test positive and to have adequate space for infirmary space for students who actually become ill. They're all planning to have staggered dining. Uh, the dining halls can't accommodate uh, a, full, a full cohort of students with, with social distancing, so they're planning to have staggered dining throughout the year. Most large events will be canceled, spectator sports, large parties. 
and most institutions are looking at either banning or limiting travel to and from campuses. They're not bringing outside speakers to campuses, and they're limiting the number of visitors who can come to campus. Linda had put up a slide about guidelines that are useful for um, your clients to look at. The American College Health Association has put out a set of reopening guidelines that are very detailed and very comprehensive and are really worth looking at, along with the CDC guidance. As Linda said, though, state guidance will vary from state to state, and it's critically important that you, your clients um, and the institutions in your states understand and know what that state guidance is. We're going to focus on Connecticut here because they put together a comprehensive reopening report authored by a committee that was headed by Yale's former uh, President Rick Levin and a group of other higher uh, education representatives. Um, the first part of that report focused on gating conditions, which are similar to the ones we've already talked about, essentially reduced infection rates and hospitalization rates and the adequacy of uh, supplies and the inadequate uh, local hospital capacity to handle any outbreaks. But in Connecticut, every uh, institution of higher education is going to be required before they reopen to submit four plans to the state. I'm gonna just go through this briefly because it may end up being a model that other states try to adopt. So the first is a plan for staged reopening. Um, which involves a lot of detail, detailed information they'll have to provide to the state, including plans for testing all students on arrival. Um, they're going to be required to test every student on arrival. Um, plans for physical distancing in classrooms, dorms, and dining halls. Um, adequacy of protective equipment for everybody. Cleaning and disinfecting plans. All of that has to be incorporated in a report to the state before they open. The second is a plan for monitoring the health of students, staff, and faculty. Uh, and for example, that plan has to include uh, provisions for testing everybody a second time 14 days after students arrive on campus. The third plan is for containment in case the, in, the infection spreads. And again, this mostly has to do with quarantining students and having adequate space and facilities for conducting quarantining uh, measures. Um, and for contact tracing anyone um, who becomes sick on campus. And the last plan that has to be submitted before the schools reopen is a plan for a contingency plan for shutting down the institution in the event of an outbreak. The other thing this report, um, reopening report did was outline what the state government's responsibilities ought to be. This is important because most institutions just don't have the resources to do the things that they're gonna be required to do. Uh, and they've asked the state to not only provide detailed safety guidelines for schools to follow, but also to ensure that schools have adequate testing resources, retesting resources, the ability to contact trace. And finally, they've asked the state to um, enact legislation that provides immunity or at least some relief from liability for schools that follow the guidelines that have been put in place when they reopen. I want to turn briefly to liability concerns um, in reopening. Obviously, this is not um, the principal thing you and your clients will be focused on, which is um, to provide a, a safe environment for your students um, and to figure out how to deliver education in the most effective way in this new environment. But of course, as lawyers, we need to be aware of the possibility of, uh, of litigation and claims and figure out how to help our clients reduce those risks. So the first category of possible risks is negligence claims from people who become infected on campus with COVID-19. Um, this is a traditional negligence analysis. Does the school have a duty here? Um, is the risk of infection reasonably foreseeable? And the answer clearly is yes, it is. And so the critical question will be, did your institution take reasonable steps to mitigate that risk for students, faculty, and employees? Um, Typically, schools are not required as a matter of law to uh, control the conduct of their adult students in higher education, but there may be some heightened responsibilities given the risks of uh, the spread of COVID on campus. And the key in responding to this, it seems to me, is have a plan, have a plan for uh, addressing the risks of uh, infection on campus, communicate, communicate that plan effectively to all the constituent groups on your campus, including the need for shared responsibility for taking, for taking precautions and, and um, 
caring for each other, execute the plan, and document the fact that you executed the plan. Those are the best measure ways to avoid these kinds of potential liability. There are also some risk of uh, claim, consumer claims, claims of fraud um, based on misrepresentations that a college or university may have made advertently or inadvertently to students who are returning to campus. This requires uh, all of the institutions to look closely at their websites, their handbooks, their marketing materials, and direct communications to students and their families. Have you conveyed in a misleading way that the campus is safe for students to return? Again, the critical issue is clear, concise communications that identify the risks, make it clear that they can't be eliminated entirely by the college or university, and that there are shared responsibilities in addressing those risks. The risk of privacy claims, I think, are low. Um, the uh, fact is testing uh, is going to be required as a matter of law in many states. Temperature checks, those kinds of steps are, are going to be deemed reasonable under the circumstances. But it gets a little more complicated when it comes to sharing information about positive test results. Um, for colleges and universities that are, they are subject to federal statutory requirements, um, the first is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, uh, FERPA, um, and whether you, whether you can disclose personally identifiable information about students and their education records to others without those students' consent. There is an exception under FERPA called the Health and Safety Emergency Exception, and that does allow institutions to disclose personal information from student records without their consent if there is a health and safety emergency and if there's an articulable and significant threat um, to public health or safety. So schools can rely on this exception under FERPA to make disclosures to public health officials and to other officials on campus who are uh, overseeing uh, public health and safety but they have to ask themselves carefully whether it's necessary to disclose the student's identity in order to protect the health and safety of others. If they reach the conclusion that it is necessary, they should document that um, as a defense mechanism. Most institutions are not covered, or many are not covered by HIPAA if they're not uh, doing electronic billing or they're self-insured. But in any event, if your institution is covered by HIPAA, uh, Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level has issued a bulletin that makes it clear that it is okay to disseminate um, uh, health, personal health information without consent to those who are at risk of contracting or spreading the disease and to others if it's done in order to prevent or lessen the spread of the disease. So there has been some federal guidance that makes it easier to make disclosures necessary to reduce the effects of the infection. On disability claims, Linda has already covered the EEOC guidance on what you can ask employees in order to reduce risks. Um, but there are um, particular issues for students or employees who may have um, a, a heightened risk of becoming infected or becoming sick if they get infected um, because they have a pre-existing disability. Um, so, for example, an employee who is otherwise going to be required to wear personal protective equipment like a mask, if that would exacerbate an existing disability, what do you do? Similarly, you can expect students to request accommodations if they're at specially high risk from getting COVID-19. Um, they may ask for a single dorm room for separate dining uh, accommodations, for separate classroom accommodations. The key in complying with the ADA and um, disability claims like this and requests for accommodation is that you must engage in an interactive process with those individuals. You need to talk to them, you need to work through on an individual basis what accommodations are reasonable and what they need. Most of you have probably heard already about the tuition, uh, tuition refund class actions. There's over a hundred of them across the country right now. Um, there, it will take months um, for these to play out, but they have raised an interesting question about what services the payment of tuition actually buys at a college or university. These claims are basically breach of contract cases saying that um, what was advertised to us, what we purchased with our tuition was an array of services, and what we ended up getting at the end of the spring was simply online education, and therefore we did not get what we bargained for. 
It's a little different looking forward to re reopening colleges and universities in the fall because they're going to clearly articulate what their plans are. And if students think it's not worth the tuition they're being charged, they don't have to attend. But given the uncertainty um, of what's going to happen and the possible uh, changes in the way education is going to be delivered in the middle of the semester, it's worth taking a good close look at how you're communicating um, with your students. This is the time to re-examine handbooks, student handbooks, look at what's written on college and university websites, look at the communications you're having with your students so that you can be crystal clear about what services are gonna be offered, what the risks are, uh, what contingency plans are, what your refund policies will be, and underscore that the critical services the college and university is providing, what tuition at its core is paying for, is the class education, the progress towards a degree which the university is going to deliver, whether it's in person or online, it is going to be delivered to students so they can continue to make progress in their education, and that's the core of what their tuition is paying for. There's been a lot of discussion about immunizing or reducing liability for institutions of higher education when they reopen. Um, at the federal level, Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee has talked about that being a critical component of Congress's efforts to help um, reopen colleges and universities. Same at the state level in Ohio, New Jersey, and other states, um, institutions of higher education have been lobbying for um, limited immunity the work they're doing uh, in reopening. Uh, this is particularly important for colleges and universities um, that have clinical education components in nursing programs, for example, where in order to complete their degree program, students must be placed in clinical settings and they're worried about potential liability. My advice is lobby as hard as you can and don't rely on immunity being passed. I'm not aware of any legislation that has been passed to date. Um, and it may not be passed. The last uh, bullet point on this slide is a somewhat obscure federal statute that was passed in the early 2000s after the Ebola and SARS uh, epidemics. Um, it provides limited immunity for um, uh, covered persons, which can be personnel at, an, at a university or college, that are dispensing or dispersing any countermeasures to counter a pandemic. This is limited immunity. It would cover typically um, efforts to provide protective equipment that turns out to be faulty, testing that um, turns out to be ineffective or has false positives. It's that kind of limited immunity, but it's, if you're uh, providing legal counsel to your clients in this, it's a statute you ought to be aware of. So this is a issue that is not directly related to uh, dealing with the COVID-19 crisis on campus, but it just happens to be taking place simultaneously, and colleges and universities are going to be struggling with this right now and over the course of the summer. Um, the U.S. Department of Education, as many of you know, has issued its final rules, uh, Title IX rules on sexual harassment on campus, and they become effective in mid-August. These rules are really complicated, and they provide new and onerous obligations on higher educational institutions. Probably the, the most problematic uh, obligation is the requirement that every formal Title IX complaint can only be resolved at the end of the day with a live hearing that provides for cross-examination by each student's uh, advisor. And if a, school, if a student doesn't have an advisor, then the college and the university is responsible for, for providing that student with an advisor to conduct cross-examination. Those same regulations require institutions to, be, to allow for remote hearings to take place so that any of the participants, the parties, the witnesses, can participate in a live hearing remotely, and they have to have the technology in place to do that. Even if the schools close and they're only doing online learning, the, title, the school's Title IX obligations do not disappear. Um, there is such a thing as sexual harassment, obviously, online. And if that happens and there are complaints, um, colleges and universities are going to have to be able to conduct full-blown uh, live hearings remotely um, with remote technology. And that's something your clients are going to have to be working on at the same time as they prepare for reopening. 
So Linda's talked a bit about um, ADA requirements, disability requirements. To the extent schools are gonna be relying more heavily on remote learning, um, there's an increased risk of complaints about uh, insufficient accessibility to uh, the remote classes and insufficient accessibility to information and updates that are being provided on college and university websites. Um, over the last couple of years, the U.S. Department of Education has um, undertaken a number of investigations of colleges and universities in response to complaints about website accessibility for disabled students, principally students who are hearing impaired or visually impaired. Um, these are significant investigations, and now is the time to examine the accessibility of your, uh, of your websites. Um, to the extent colleges and universities are really considering moving whole programs online, um, they need to be uh, aware of the accreditation requirements that uh, they may need to evaluate before they make those programs, uh, implement those programs. And similarly, they have to look at the, uh, their state uh, regulatory requirements for online programs. They may need separate approvals to put those programs into, into place. So that takes us to steps institutions can be undertaking right now. Um, these are, are focused on colleges and universities, but many of them really apply to secondary institutions as well. So the first is obvious. This is the time to be preparing detailed safety plans for reopening and clear contingency plans for shutting down if you have to shut down because of a renewed outbreak. Critically important that you follow the guidance from the CDC, the current and updated guidance from CDC and any state public health officials, and that you document um, your compliance with both state and federal guidance. It's also the time to check um, your institution's um, insurance coverage. For the most part, those policies will not cover uh, viral infections and the harm from viral infections, but you ought to know what coverage is available for the things that you're undertaking. This may be the most important slide in my view. Um, it, it really critically important to have very clear communications to students, parents, faculty, and employees about the risks of COVID-19 on your campus and the safety plans your, the college or university is putting into place um, for students to return to campus. You need to be clear about the steps your institution is taking to mitigate those risks. Be careful not to overstate what you're doing. You can't say that you're doing, obviously, testing 100% of the student body if you don't have the resources to do that. You should be clear in communicating with students that it is not possible for the institution to eliminate the risk of infection on campus entirely, and that both students and staff have a shared responsibility to follow the guidelines and restrictions that your institution is putting in place, or those guidelines won't be effective. Okay, a number of institutions are considering uh, putting together a return to campus form, which would essentially be an acknowledgement of the risks and responsibilities that all constituents at the university or college have um, in dealing with the risks of a COVID infection. Um, and many are trying to include a waiver or hold harmless clause uh, in that form. Some institutions, I know the University of Michigan is one of them, um, have put in detailed provisions regarding COVID-19 in their student housing contract, um, which would include a, a, an acknowledgement of what the new rules are in student housing, what the risks are, and what the student shared responsibilities are for complying with those rules. Um, as Linda mentioned earlier in the presentation, it's critically important for every institution to be up on and understand the current state and federal requirements um, for testing of students and for the permissible disclosure of the results of those tests. And finally, contact tracing is going to be an important part of reopening um, these institutions of higher education. And institutions are now considering using a mobile app on students' cell phones um, to assist with contact tracing. Because that does uh, involve some uh, intrusion into their privacy, it would be best to have a voluntary agreement by students if they're willing to do it, to download the app and, and allow it to be used. As I mentioned earlier, this is the time for colleges and universities to re review all of their handbooks, student handbooks, employee handbooks, faculty handbooks, look at their internal policies, look at what they say on their website and their marketing materials, because this is a new world um, they're entering into beginning with the fall of 2020. 
those materials probably have statements in them talking about providing a safe and healthy campus for all constituents who are, who are going to be there. Obviously, that is the goal. That is what colleges and universities want to do. But you have to consider revising the way those statements are made um, so that they, they now comport with the things you are telling um, your students and families and employees about the risks of COVID infection, what the institution is doing to mitigate those risks, and what everybody's shared responsibilities are. Similarly, this is a time to look in those same sources for promises that today may seem unrealistic about the kind of sweeping educational experience with co filled with co-curricular activities, athletics, and other things that may or may not be possible um, when colleges reopen and may be inconsistent if the schools have to return to distance learning. Obviously, it's critically important to train all staff on the health and safety protocols that are going to be put into place, including how to use technology that the that colleges and universities are implementing and protective equipment. If your faculty or staff are going to help in any way in conducting tests or implementing safety protocols, make sure you look at faculty and employee handbooks to see if it's permissible to use um, them in this way. Look at collective bargaining agreements for any relevant limitations on um, additional duties that can be imposed on uh, union members. As I mentioned before, this is the time to begin to prepare for an expected increase in special accommodation requests from students and perhaps from employees as well, from people who are especially uh, vulnerable to COVID-19 and the illness that might follow. For athletics, much too much to get into in this, in this short time, but we have to monitor guidance that's going to be coming out from the NCAA and any athletics leagues that your institution is a part of on special safety requirements for student athletes and coaches. And as we just discussed, this is the time to begin putting into place both the technology and the protocols necessary to conduct Title IX hearings remotely. Um, again, not at the heart of COVID-19, but a big burden that your client institutions are going to have to bear. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Um, if you have questions, obviously, Linda and I uh, would be happy to, to address them. And thanks very much uh, for listening today. Thank you.